My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in context. Call me, 1-800-743-CNBC, or tweet me at Jim Kramer. This wasn't just a great day for the stock market. Dow surging 353 points. S&P gaining 0.97%. NASDAQ falling 1.39%. It was also a revealing day. For weeks, we have been battered by China worries. As the trade war seems to be heating up, and anything that looked remotely like a China stock, well, it just got hammered. What makes a China stock? Well, just look at what rallied big today. After President Trump tweeted that he had a very good conversation with his Chinese counterpart, President Xi. Uh, by the way, that by itself was pretty shocking. Uh, but it gave us a nice boost. As did the news that the two leaders are planning to have an extended conversation, extended meeting at the G20 conference next week. Now, this meeting is a very big deal. First, until today, we doubted there even would be one. Even after today's terrific run, the market's effectively been stuck here. Uh, All we've done is take a round trip back to where we were in late April. Did you know that? The issue. Everyone's worried that the trade war with China is causing an economic slowdown here, which means the Federal Reserve needs to cut interest rates either at its meeting tomorrow or perhaps the one in July. I don't mind when stocks are being kept afloat by what's known as the Fed put, meaning there's a net underneath the averages that will catch us or perhaps even act as a trampoline and propel us higher when the Fed takes action. You know I think it makes sense for the Fed to cut more each year. That last rate hike was wrong. They know nothing. Long-term bond yields are plummeting. Housing's getting weaker. Retail sluggish. Transport's flying. That's exactly when the Fed should tap on the accelerator. I keep describing this as the bizarre bad news is good news dynamic. Bad economic news means that the Fed is more likely to do something, which allows stocks to go higher. Unfortunately, though, this is not the kind of dynamic that can take the averages to much higher levels. As much as I want the Fed to cut interest rates, you know what? I'd be much happier and it would be much better if we simply had a strong economy with low inflation like we have, rather than a not-so-hot economy that's about to get a boost from our central bank before it completely rolls over and dies. Today's China-fueled rally shows us exactly what that would look like. What allowed this remarkable run? Well, it's simple. Wall Street is so worried about the trade war that any indication there might be ratcheting down intentions is taken as really fabulous news and a reason to buy. Now, we know that President Trump is itching to extend his tariffs to the remaining $300 billion worth of goods that we import from China because he feels betrayed by Xi. And he's wary about how the Chinese have played other presidents. But if we get, say, a 10% tariff on that $300 billion, which, by the way, I think is very possible, American consumers will take a major hit because the tariff, well, you know what? In the end, we're going to start seeing it, I think, as a targeted sales tax. Not now. The president thinks the tariff's paid for by the Chinese. Retailers have been warning us for ages, though, about this. You could argue that all of these companies are simply talking their book, and that's true to an extent. But that's the point. Retailers want to stop the tariffs from spreading because they believe these tariffs will be bad for their businesses or, or at least bad for their business, but might be good for the country. The other problem with situations that we can't necessarily count on our valiant Fed chief, Jay Powell. He needs to walk on a fine line. Every time he pre- uh, the president bashes him for foolishly raising rates in December, even though the president was right, it makes it harder for Powell to roll back that decision. He doesn't want to look like a puppet. 
So I'm very glad that we got this China news today because I think the China stocks are key to the market's next leg, with or without a rate cut. However, let me give you a major caveat here. I doubt that anything will come to fruition at the G20 meeting. I know that I'm in minority. I don't care. Because we've seen this movie before. I think President Xi called Trump like he did before the Buenos Aires meeting when he tried to stop the first round of tariffs from rising to 25. But then the talks broke down. Tariffs went up. I think we can see a repeat. We know the president has a big wish list. Well, he wants the Chinese to crack down on cyber theft. Good luck there. Enforce technology transfers. <laughs> stop dumping things like steel, aluminum, and anything else. Curb fentanyl. Hmm. Uh, and to stop manipulating their currency, like when they devalued uh, theirs by 10% to defeat the tariffs. I think that wish list is a little too much for the Communist Party or the PLA. In short, after today, there's too much optimism. We haven't seen any olive branches ahead of this meeting, and I, we didn't see it, a company uh, be told that it's okay to do more business in China or be able to go it alone like an American Express. We didn't see that. I do expect our stock market to be hammered if nothing positive comes off this G20 meeting. And I'm now telling you that I think, just me, not most pundits, think that the most likely outcome is nothing happens. If that's the case, which stocks are likely to get slammed after we saw what happened today so that you know what a disappointing G20 meeting would be? Well, first is the semiconductors. When Broadcom reported last week, they told us there could be a massive shortfall because the president blacklisted one of their biggest customers, Huawei. Broadcom stock is now rebounded almost back to where it was before the disappointment. Extraordinary. Micron's struggling back up. Commodity semis are always in demand in China. Xilinx, the king of Chinese 5G, is roaring back. Meanwhile, Lamb Research surged higher today in spite of a recent downgrade. Skyworks Solutions, Corvette, Western Digital, all rallied. I think all these stocks will get hit, if not hit hard, if there is no deal. The House of Pain. And to the G20. Second, Apple. Now, you know my stance on Apple. We, we, we got to own it. Boys, that been right. I mean, come on. The stock's going down from 140 all the way up to the 190s. But uh, after this recent run, I think the stock is still way too cheap. The uh, Let's say you have to expect it to get hit if the president rolls out another round of tariffs. And he wrongly doesn't give them an exception. Yes, I am calling for an Apple exception to the next round of tariffs. Third, the industrials. These are very tricky. Right now, there are two sets of industrials that are roaring. you got the capital goods companies that Wall Street views as being dependent on China, although maybe they've been punished enough. And then you've got the ones that have rallied enough today that they're vulnerable again. I think Caterpillar and Boeing fall in the first category. Cats become much more of a service-oriented company than most people realize. Boeing's all about the future of the 737 MAX. I think both stocks have real cattles ahead, so I wouldn't sweat owning them. As a matter of fact, I like them both here. But then there are the companies that really need China because it accounts for a huge percentage of what growth they have. Companies like Emerson, 3M, that stock was up today. United Technologies, actually, these were all up. Um, I think the first two, uh, Emerson, 3M, I think they might miss their numbers if there's no deal. As for United Technologies, even if the estimates are okay, this is a complicated merger that's got going with Raytheon plus a breakup story. I bet that stock will be under pressure until we have some resolution with the Chinese. Fourth, the transports. These stocks have been crushed by the trade war, but FedEx bounced today. The rails are making a comeback. Uh, more on that later when we speak to the CEO of Union Pacific. Uh, to me, these are rough stocks uh, because if the president hits China with more tariffs, they galore. Finally, there's wind resorts in Las Vegas Sands. Both get walloped if there's no deal. That makes their Macau business shaky. Now, I know that on a day like today, nobody wants to hear any of that negative stuff I just told you. I mean, there's tremendous optimism. But I think i got to present a realist view out here on Mad Money. I think it may prove to be a mistake, given the poor record of the Chinese in keeping promises and the lack of trust Trump has shown for his good friend, she. Remember, he said, she said. The bottom line, 
You need to remember there's one situation that nobody who owns stocks want to see. If Fed Chief Jay Powell chooses to be less cautious, less vigilant about stopping a slowdown because of Trump's latest tweet, and there's no deal at the G20 summit. It's a real possibility, and you can't afford to pretend otherwise, especially after today's magnificent run. Eric in New York. Eric! CEO, Tractor Supply, with impressive earnings and uh, decent fundamentals, do you think these 52-week high levels are sustainable, yes or no? Well, I got to tell you, you know I like Tractor Supply very, very much, but now I got to worry about the weather. I have to worry about the weather that I'm going to hurt you if I say buy Tractor Supply up here when I liked it in the 70s, when management and I went over the whole story and we thought it was really terrific. Uh, so uh, I like it in the 70s, uh, 105, um, passing. Hey, how about we go to Mark in my old home state of Pennsylvania, Mark? Hey, Jim, how's it going? Not bad, how about you, Mark? Okay. Um, thanks for making my call first. Of course. Um, I'm calling about TJX, the yeah. discounter. Uh-huh. And uh, I know I saw your segment regarding uh, retailers, you know, the barbell. Right. Philosophy, hey, Ben, run that ad. Isn't that cool? Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. All I was going to say is with TJX, it's not exactly a necessity they sell. And a lot of their goods are imported from China with the tariff thing. And I'm just wondering if that's as good a... Uh, a type of situation as the dollar. Well, remember, uh, a, lot of their, a lot of their stuff is bought from other merchants that need to lay off uh, goods. And I don't want to mention the merchants in, in the future that they're going to lay off goods, but there's plenty there. It's kind of like Ollie's. You know, it, it, it was just another one I left out that I shouldn't have. All right, guys, I don't want to burst anyone's bubbles, but, but there is a negative Fed situation that can play out tomorrow. And, and also, I'm not banking on this G20. I mean, everyone else is, so I got to do the opposite. Man, money tonight. Railroad giant Union Pacific has been crisscrossing the United States since 1862. Remember the uh, the golden spike? Uh, can its connections put the company on the right track to profits, or could the trade debate make it lose some steam? Do not miss my exclusive. Man, it, it's time for some caffeine. I'm grinding through the numbers from Starbucks and Dunkin' to serve the stock with a better brew. And I'm taking a look at Wall Street Warriors Lululemon and Under Armour. Are they overstretched or are they just hitting their stride? I'm going off the charts to find out. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. They were a piece of the engine that powered America to industrial prosperity. Born in 1862, this company helped give the country the inside track to economic success. In the modern era, can investors still ride the rails to riches? As we prepare for tomorrow's Fed meeting, everyone's trying to figure out the economy's heading into a recession. So how do we get a clear read on the state of commerce in the country? We check in with the railroads because they transport just about everything that matters. Take Union Pacific. Here's a railroad with a huge presence on the West Coast, which gives them a very good idea of what we're importing from China. Some analysts have already decided to throw in the towel. Over the last week, Union Pacific's gotten hit with two separate downgrades from buy to hold based on the expectation that the economy is slowing. Not anything that Union Pacific was doing. And that means the earnings estimates have to come down. 
Are they right to be worried? Let's take a closer look with the straight-shooting Lance Fritz. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of Union Pacific to learn more about how his company's doing where it's headed. Mr. Fritz, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank Good you to see you, much, sir. Yeah, Thank you, Lance. Thank you. Come on. Thank you. Thank you. All right. First, I, before I get into this stuff, there is a great heritage of your company, and I want people to know it, that Union Pacific is probably, I think, the leader, always has been, and uh, has a great perspective on this country. I just want you to tell people the heritage. Yeah, so let's let's go back to May 10th of this year where we celebrated the 150th anniversary of the driving of the Golden Spike. And that connection of East and West changed the country forever. There's a couple of little anecdotes we used. One was prior to that, going from New York to San Francisco took six months and you risked your life. And in in real dollars at that time, it was a thousand bucks a person. When we opened up, it turned into a seven day trip with a first class ticket for 160 bucks. You know, I mean, it just fundamentally changed the United States. And ever since, we've been part of the fabric of the economy and we've been building America. Well, that's one of the reasons I'm glad you went that way, because to me, fabric of America dictates lots, which means you are uh, conditioned to trade. You have to worry about trade. You have to worry about volumes. Strangely enough, you have to worry about weather. These have all impacted. Sometimes I wonder whether the weather has been so bad that something's changed with the weather because it has deeply affected your earnings. Yeah, it definitely has. Uh, As we've seen climate change occur, regardless of what you think the cause is, it's occurring. And as we've seen that occur, we've seen more violent weather impacting our railroad. We're an outdoor factory. And we've seen seasons change. And the one thing that's fantastic about our team uh, working with the communities that we serve is we recover in epic manner, right? We ju- right. This past March, we had our main east-west main line out for almost two weeks. Uh, it took us about 13 days to rebuild about a mile and a half of railroad. And our team did it without injury. And I'm just so proud of their ingenuity and how quickly and aggressively we go after restoring our railroad. At the same time, I sometimes wonder whether the weather has such incredible implications uh, for volume as does a potential slowdown. We'll talk about that. That even with these amazing things you're doing with precision railroading, Mm -hmm. it will defeat you. And you can't show the shareholders all that you can bring home. Yeah, the weather will not defeat us. Okay. Because there's things that we can do to be prepared. So there's a, there's a tool that we use right now. It's unique to us where uh, our weather service, like the NOAA mm-hmm. and, and, and profits uh, services, will provide to us uh, an idea that you're going to get hit with a, with a microburst in a matter of two or three days in this area. Well, we've done the hydrology to know where that's going to impact the railroad, and we'll send out a note to the men and women who ret- maintain that piece of railroad to tell them, hey, clear these culverts. These three culverts are the ones that will get you in trouble if they're not ready to handle the water. So we do things like that to prepare for the weather. So, no, the, the weather won't dictate our, our, our outcomes. We've we got to deal with the weather. We're largely in control of what the bottom line is going to look like. All right. Now, we have a president who tweets today that he's going to see she and talk about uh, tariffs at the G20. The work that I've done have shown that the president is uh, actually mistrustful of she and is ready to increase the uh, tariffs to include the $300 billion, perhaps as much as 10%. Have you done the mathematics on what that might mean for Union Pacific? Yeah, Jim, let me start by saying I personally and we believe the president is addressing the right topics with China. Okay. That it's been a long time coming to make sure that China does uh, live up to the standards and spirit of the WTO 
and that they're held accountable to. Are you me. saying that even though that can hurt your business? I'm saying that because I think that's the right outcome for the United States. Okay, now, how we get there is a different story. I do think tariffs and of the order of magnitude that we're seeing right now, 25%, I think that's going to ultimately damage the U.S. economy if they go on too long. Okay. Uh, the president's used them as an effective tool to get China to the table. Right. Uh, but I, but I, I think we need to use caution as to how deep and long we use that as a tool because it'll definitely create uh, a problem with our economy. Now, the president's people I talked to have said over and over again that it's actually because of, like, well, take your plastics business, which is on fire, mm-hmm. that they'll bring manufacturing back, which would be great for Union Pacific, that the consumer really isn't going to be hurt, and that, frankly, and to some degree, the Chinese are paying for the tariffs. Now, classic economics 101 says that that's a little bit of, of a, let's say, an ill-advised way to look at it. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is a sense in the White House that these things are working, and there's no reason to keep them temporary until the Chinese change their ways, stop stealing intellectual property. You know the list. Yes. Um, when you speak to the president's people and you speak to Wa- in Washington, mm-hmm. do you tell them that the American people could get hurt and that maybe there's a, we have to take a little slower? What do you recommend? Yeah, Jim, I actually have shared with the president that tariffs do ultimately hurt local economies and okay. hurt our people. A great example, uh, the state of Nebraska has a very large ag community. Where you're head- headquartered? That's where we're headquartered. And that ag community has been significantly negatively impacted by uh, the trade dispute with China as China's gotten out of the market for U.S. soybeans. Right. That one in two acres in the United States of soybeans is planted for export. And it used to be about 40% of those exports were bought by the Chinese. They're about zero right now. So that means 20% of the crop has to find a new home. And what a lot of people don't think about is once you break a supply chain, other supply chains grow to replace it. Well, I hear that if they go to Brazil, you can't get unseat Brazil. Or if you unseat them, you might not unseat them all the way. So you got to worry about that. Now, there are other impacts that go on the economy. You know, sometimes a tariff can mean the U.S. Uh, domestic steel market is pretty robust. Right. Well, that's good. That doesn't mean all U.S. steel jobs are coming back. Right. The relentless pursuit of productivity and the reality of competing globally says a lot of those jobs have been lost to automation. Yeah, we have to accept that, I think. I mm-hmm. think we have to. You can't not even come back. Um, the last couple downgrades have been about trucks and trucking rates going down they've been going up and how railroads have to follow i'm looking at what you're doing with precision railroading and say okay let's say there is some decline in the rate the fact is this precision railroading is a remarkable concept that is just beginning and you can get your operating ratio down even if the volumes don't stay because of uh, the trucking problem. We absolutely believe that. You do. Good. This is key. You definitely hit that we are in a softer truck market, and that might have impact on the top line. But we also know that our implementation of PSR, Precision Scheduled Railroading, which we call Unified Plan 2020, that's well on its way. And uh, it's demonstrating significant productivity and efficiency savings. And I think... Well, we know we're keeping with our guidance this year, which is a sub-61 operating right, ratio. which is big. And, and over $500 million in productivity just this year. And we're as confident as ever that we're going to be able to achieve both. As we're always giving some of that back, I know that with your, uh, your balance sheet allows you to continue to buy back shares. You've bought back a tremendous amount. It seems to be your orientation to continue to return money to shareholders. It is. So the, so the whole thing we're trying to do, Jim, is create more ability to generate cash and operating income. 
And what we do with that cash is we, we, we first invest the first dollar into the railroad. Right. And then whatever's left, we give back to our shareholders in a combination of buybacks or dividends. That's fantastic. The last question I have is you had to be somewhat relieved. Mexico is such a huge part of your business. I have places in Mexico. I see Union Pacific everywhere. You're a dominant player. That, that's good news. Even though you, I know that there are issues about Germans building plants there and uh, Japanese building plants there, but no tariff is good news for Union Pacific. Absolutely. It's great news that that dispute was settled right. without tariffs. Now there's work to be done. The USMCA has to be ratified. Yes. We have to get trade right with China. We have to move on to an agreement with Japan, and we need an agreement with the EU. Whew. It's a tall order, but it sounds like you're optimistic. I am. All right, very good. That's Lance Fritz, Chairman, President, and CEO of Union Pacific. I hope you see why I think this is my favorite railroad. No slight. The other guys are great, too. But, wow, I think you're going to continue to deliver, and this precision is working. That money's back after the break. Sometimes you're late to the story, and all you can do is try not to chase. But just because we missed a miraculous move, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand, learn from it, and put it in context. For weeks now, I've been watching the incredible run the two big coffee chains had, Starbucks and Dunkin' Brands, the former up nearly 29%. This is a big cap name. The latter up 25%. And these, these companies have done a fantastic job of defying the Bears. Starbucks was supposed to be caught in the crosshairs of the trade war with China. Duncan was being targeted by some legendary short sellers predicting a downturn. In the end, both stocks have caught fire. And while I think they're too expensive for the moment to pounce on, it's worth thinking about what's fueling this move. See, it's not just about coffee prices, which have indeed been trending lower for the past couple of years and it's helped gross margins. These are two companies that have taken control of their own destiny. So why don't we first start with Starbucks, okay? Now, this is my favorite of the two, candidly. This is a stock that spent years lost in the wilderness. That's between the 50s and 60s, 50s and 60s. Now it's at 83. What happened? Okay, about a year ago, the stock had a big breakdown. The company pre-announced some ugly numbers for the third quarter. And you can see... I mean, this thing is kind of just kind of marked time. OK, uh, management slashed their same store sales forecast from three percent down to one percent. Boy, the market hated that. They trimmed earnings guidance. CEO Kevin Johnson, late of Juniper, who was on the board of Starbucks uh, and replaced Howard Schultz. I know he's irreplaceable, but he replaced him, came out and admitted that our recent performance does not reflect the potential of our exceptional brand and is not acceptable. Boy, you got to love it when executives admit fault and then take responsibility for not delivering. The stock briefly dipped to lowest 47 on the news. But since then, Starbucks has been working its way higher, practically in a straight line with only a couple of speed bumps. And how did they do it? Well, this is a learning lesson. At the same time Johnson took responsibility for the disappointing results, he told us what he planned to do to fix it. The plan. Johnson said Starbucks would close more underperforming stores in most densely penetrated markets. He talked about new digital initiatives to bring in more customers, and he promised to return $25 billion, with a B, in cash to shareholders via dividends and buybacks, including an immediate 20% dividend boost. However, in the wake of that negative pre-announcement, the analysts turned on Starbucks. The U.S. business seemed to be slowing. The Chinese business was flat. It didn't inspire a lot of confidence. Of course, we brought Kevin Johnson on the show the very next day, and we asked him some very tough questions. He told a very good story. But it was tough to like this one at 48. Uh, in retrospect, that was the perfect time to buy. 
Uh, now, your next opportunity came six months later when Starbucks held its biennial investor day in December. While there was a lot of new information coming out of the event, everyone focused on the unfortunate headline that Starbucks had cut its long term earnings growth forecast from 12 percent to 10 percent in a very tough moment for the market. That's not what anyone wanted to hear. The next morning, I sat down with Kevin Johnson and Dara Koslarshahi, who are the CEO of Uber, because the two companies were partnering up on delivery. My first question was about the guidance, and Johnson pointed out that his forecast for the next few years remained strong. The 2019 guidance was unchanged for 2020 and 2021. He called for 13% earnings growth. It's only after 2021 that he had Starbucks trimmed its long-term forecast out of an abundance of caution. But the market wasn't having it, and the stock got dinged on the news falling to 60. Once again, that was a great buying opportunity. And to be fair, when they started buying stock back in the low 50s, I was on board. But then I really just felt like, well, wait a second. This could be foul money. Why? Because Kevin Johnson, I've known him for 20 years, and he's a man of his word. Between his digital initiatives, his execution improvements, the partnership with Uber Eats, and his buyback, Starbucks has been able to deliver two excellent quarters in a row. Remember that $25 billion the company told us it would return to shareholders? As of March, for, as of March, they've already gone through $14 billion, and they bought a ton back in the low 50s. And they announced another $2 billion accelerated buyback on top. Remember, they got all that money from Nestle's. This man, I mean, I know, I've known some, there's, there's an advantage to being around for a long time. I knew how great this guy was at Juniper. I knew he was money. Then last month, the stock experienced one last pullback from 80 to 75. As the China fears heated up, Starbucks is the largest coffee chain in the People's Republic, which is a major source of growth for the company. People are starting to talk about how lock-in, which just came public, is going to hurt them. But the stock has shrugged off those worries. And the Chinese consumers, they keep coming back regardless of the trade war. I think Starbucks should never have sold off so hard in the first place last year, which is one reason why the stock has had such a fabulous, been such a fabulous winner, as management just keeps delivering and delivering. Wow, the numbers in 2019 so far so good. Kevin Johnson deserved the benefit of the doubt. I'm glad we gave it to him. And while I'm hesitant to pound the table all the way up here, uh, maybe more on that later, I absolutely think it's worth putting this one on your shopping list. Uh, maybe on the hope that we get another pullback, perhaps because uh, the trade deal breaks down, right? We get all this trade talk. We could get an opportunity here. Uh, all right. Only in the weakest, please. How about Dunkin' Brits, the parent of Dunkin' Donuts? Let me go over here. This one's a little different. Duncan's stock has been moving up steadily for years, as this is a terrific regional going to national story. There used to be a lot of these in California. See, not that long ago, Duncan was mostly a northeastern brand with some exposure to the southeast and the Midwest. Now it's a nationwide brand. They've also been expanding what they sell, going from coffee and donuts uh, to more of a full-service breakfast outfit. However, last year, the company drew the, the attention of some high-profile skeptics. And take a look at this, because this is what, a, this is what some short sellers can do to your stock, too. Not that the stock wouldn't be headed this way, but they act as an accelerant on the downside. Roughly 14 months ago, James Chanos, he's a legendary short seller, I've known him for years, announced that he'd been shorting Duncan for about a year. His reasoning. Chanos said the stock was overvalued and also called into question the company's asset-light, franchise-based business model. While the company reported a solid beat and raised quarter in October, the stock sold off hard, along with the rest of the market, in November and December. Okay? But then it came roaring right back. And so far this year, Duncan's has surged higher and higher based on a series of very good numbers. How'd they do it? A lot of this is simply good, solid execution. The company has simplified its menu, improved the loyalty program dramatically, by the way, gotten much more technologically involved, opened new stores, renovated existing stores, and unleashed an on-the-go ordering system. When Duncan reported its latest quarter in May, 
Those initiatives paid off as the company delivered a nice top and bottom line beat with better than expected same store sales. Long story short, management made a bunch of investments in the business last year, and now they're reaping the rewards. I think the story still has legs. Duncan still has a ton of room to grow on the West Coast. My sympathies to James Chanos and then any other short sellers. These guys delivered. Executives can be smart. The one problem with Starbucks and Duncan, well, it's the same reason why I'm talking about them. The stocks have exploded higher this year, and we hate chasing stocks after big runs. Starbucks now sells for 27 times next year's earnings estimates. Duncan sells for 25 times these numbers. That is expensive. Worse, they've just broken out to new highs just in the past month, and that's simply not when you're supposed to buy them. But I do feel good. I told you in the 50s to buy this one and in the 60s to buy this one and in the 70s. So I don't have any remorse. Bottom line. Sometimes you need to be disciplined. Starbucks and Dunkin' Brands are two terrific coffee chains. But if you don't own them already, I think this may not be the correct moment to start building a position. However, they're still fantastic companies. So I recommend putting them in your shopping list. If either stock gets brought down for whatever reason, because of the G20 goes bad, because pal, uh, let's see what he says. Pal says the thing that Trump doesn't want him to see. Well, let's just say say that's when you're going to get your opportunity. And you have my blessing to start buying. I'm going to Kyle in Maryland. Kyle! A big old Baltimore booyah for you, Professor Kramer. There's nothing like a Maryland call. I always have to say that. They have the most spirit of any state. Try beating them. Let's go to work. Well, thank you. I'm a college student. I'm an active investor, and I never miss a show. I even take notes because I think your opinion and experience is extremely valuable. Just a sec. I have to stop you. Kyle? Can I stop conversation? I thought college kids don't watch TV. I thought they cut the cord. I thought they don't watch business. You are telling me you are a devotee and you are you are cadre for mad money, aren't you? Professor Kramer, I even bought cable television just so I could watch your show live. Let's go to work. All right. So my question for you today is about Lucky and Coffee, ticker LK. I remember your segment on their IPO about a month ago. And I agree with you when you warned us about their cash flow statement. It's awful. But with ridiculous and rapid revenue and store growth, could you make a case for maybe wanting to trade, not invest, but trade this stock? And if not, could you give us a company who chooses this extreme growth as their business model? And where on their financial reports do you see an indication of some real value or potential? Because I would argue that any company who takes on this business model doesn't have the cash flows that we get excited reading about. Kyle, Thank listen you. to me and listen good, okay? Because I'm only going to say it once. You want to go into that lock-in, that's fine. I think you're going to be eviscerated by Starbucks. What you need is Shopify. I am not kidding. I think Shopify is the greatest growth profile of any company I know. Secondarily, it will be Twilio. But I think if you buy that lock-in, you are playing with fire. And I am not going to get involved, even as I think you are terrific. And I thank you for calling. I give you Shopify. And then, secondarily, Twilio. All right, discipline Trump's conviction, people. Starbucks and Dunkin' Brands, they're terrific. They are. They're great. We love them, right? Especially Kevin Johnson, KJ, as I like to call them. But this isn't necessarily the right moment to buy. The earlier moments when we're pounding the table were, hey, mad money ahead. Can uh, Lululemon or Under Armour work up a sweat in this market? Ha <laughs> ha. I am tackling the technicals to find out. Then what Facebook's move into e-commerce really means for this stock, not like what you heard all day. And all your calls, rapid fire, in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Is 
a real bull market in athletic apparel, not just something ephemeral. In the past few weeks, both Lululemon and Under Armour have rocketed higher. And I think it's worth pondering whether these two stocks might even have more to run after these moves. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Dan Fitzpatrick. Oh, he's a terrific technician. He's also the founder of Stock Market Mentor, as well as being my colleague at realmoney.com. Get a better read of this situation. Let's start with the daily chart of one of my absolute favorites, Lululemon, which has vaulted 70% from its lows last December. Now, is it too late? you got to ask us. Whoa, uh, for, uh, to buy Lulu? Well, you're late, but Fitzpatrick thinks you might not be too late. As he sees it, there's evidence that this stock is still being bought by big institutional investors, and that means it could have more upside. Near term, he thinks the stock could go to $200. Longer term, he thinks it's headed to 220 Nice. Ever since Lulu reported a truly blowout quarter at the end of March, the stock surged from 146 to 167 and really hasn't looked back since. Instead, we spent the last few months consolidating these gains, trading sideways between 160 and 180. Then yesterday, Lulu broke out above 180, uh, and now it's at 188. So what do we make of this move? Okay, Fitzpatrick notes that when stocks break out of a particular trading range, uh, they often establish a new channel right above it, and usually it's the same size as the one that's below. These boxes are price, these bo- boxes of prices. That's a cool word, isn't it? Boxes of prices are known as Darvis boxes because a trader by the name of Nicholas Darvis first came up with the idea. They look like a flight of stairs, okay? And this is pretty cool stuff. Based on this method, Lulu just broke out of the 160 to 180 box. Uh, that means its next ceiling resistance should be at 200. See, up 20. However, Fitzpatrick says this is a short-term target, not a long-term one. What else? He likes that Lulu's floor of support is defined by its 50-day moving average. That's the red line. Uh, very positive. Same goes for the fact that it's flying on very high volume. You see the spike in volume right here? That's very important. Because this is a sure sign that big money keeps flowing into this stock. All right, how about a longer-term view? I want you to take a look at Lululemon's weekly chart, okay? On this one, the longer-term 40-week moving average, okay, here's the blue line, uh, defines Lulu's floor of support. Isn't this pretty consistent, right? I mean, that really does tell you the story. It's good news. Why is it good news? Well, because Fitzpatrick thinks that the slope of the 40-week moving average is just about right. It's not too flat, which would indicate that the stock is stagnating. It's not too steep, which would mean it's having a parabolic move, and easy money has already been made. Parabolic moves, according to Kramer, are always bad moves. Can't go up too fast. This is a Goldilocks slope, so to speak. It can lose moving higher at a rate that's just right. Now, if we use the same Darvis box methodology on the weekly chart, what does it give us? Well, for the past several months, Lulu's been trading in a range between 110 and 165. That's a $55 range. So if we operate under the assumption that stocks go from one box to another box of the same size, that means Lululemon's new range should run from 165 to 220. And that's why Fitzpatrick thinks it can go to 220 over a longer period of time. What else? Fitzpatrick points out that you can see seven or eight very tall volume bars, uh, and they're all green, okay? All right, so this is important. In other words, the stock has been roaring on high volume, which gives us more evidence that major institutions are putting their money to work in Lululemon. That's why it thinks it's not too late to buy the stock. As long as the stock stays above its 40-week moving average, of which it's well above right now, Fitzpatrick remains a believer. You can see all the big... uh, Big moves are up on big volume. All right, now how about one that really people have given up on except for me, and now they're starting, oh, the Johnny-come-latelys are joining now. I'm talking about Under Armour. 
Yes, this one has a very different trajectory. Witness the action under Armour's weekly chart, okay? Here's a stock that spent years getting hammered. I mean, oh, oh man. It's now down 50% from its highs in 2015. But uh, Under Armour has finally started showing signs of life as it pops out of what's known as a volatility squeeze. All right. So where does Fitzpatrick think it's headed? Okay, before the breakout, Under Armour was trading between $16.50 and $25. Okay, you can see this. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, and that gives us an $8.50 range. This channel first started forming early last year when the stock first broke out above its 40-week moving average. For Fitzpatrick, that means it has an extremely durable and reliable base that can serve as a springboard for much higher prices. Squeeze. Boom. Okay. If we use the same measured methodology that we use for Lululemon, that means this stock is now trading between 25 and 33.50. Given that it spent months coiled like a spring right below its old ceiling of resistance, Fitzpatrick thinks the stock can cover that ground pretty darn quickly. And even at 33.50, up 23, 23% from these levels, Under Armour would still be 39% below its all-time highs. So that's not a crazy target at all. I agree. So how do we get here? Take a look at Under Armour's daily chart. Fitzpatrick says that the stock's recent run is all about a volatility squeeze. Remember, I mentioned that. And you measure volatility with these two black lines that are known as Bollinger Bands. Okay, uh, John Bollinger, unbelievable technician. Okay, Um, when these bands get tight, it often leads to a big move in price uh, because volatility is cyclical. You go from periods of low volatility to periods of high volatility, and that's what's happening right now with Under Armour. At the same time, there's the moving average convergence divergence, or MACD indicator, right down here, okay? Uh, And that powerful momentum gauge helps technicians detect changes in a stock's trajectory before, not coincident, but before they happen, uh, and it continues to tell a bullish story. Fitzpatrick also notes that Under Armour is now getting support, not from its longer-term 50-day moving average, but from its shorter-term 20-day moving average, the blue line, okay, I mean, you can see that. It's getting support from there, uh, which the stock rebounded off of last month. That's another sign of upper momentum. Finally, let's zoom in with a short-term version of the daily chart going back to April, okay? Wow, a lot of stuff here. And, uh, Fitzpatrick has one problem with Under Armour based on this action. While the stock has exploded higher over the past couple of weeks, the volume has been a bit light. Remember, volume is like a polygraph for technicians. High volume means a move is telling the truth. Light volume means it might be lying. So when a stock rallies, you want it to rally on a rising volume. Under Armour did that at the very beginning of the month when the stock rebounded off that 50-day moving average that I showed you earlier, okay? Uh, since then, though, while the rally has continued, the volume has dropped off, as we see. That's not fatal to the story, but it definitely makes Fitzpatrick more cautious. Right now, he'd be happy just to see Under Armour regroup at current levels and give its moving averages time to play catch-up. Still, he thinks it's worth buying on any kind of pullback, and boy, do I ever agree with him. Here's the bottom line. While Lululemon and Under Armour have pole vaulted higher in recent weeks, the charges interpreted by Dan Fitzpatrick suggest that both stocks could have more room to run. He thinks you aren't too late, and you know what? I agree with him. Mad Money's back after the break. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate down. Over the lightning round. We're starting with Amy in Connecticut. Amy. Good evening, Mr. Kramer. Good evening, Amy. I appreciate your uh, 25 years of market wisdom and valuable insight. Oh, thank um, you. Thanks for that, and thanks for taking my call. My question is for a stock. Great looking chart and an uptrend, but one of the few not participating in today's rally. Company is Atlassian. Atlassian. I think that, you know, people say they're rivals with Slack, they're partners with Slack. 
I say they're fantastic, and I like those guys. And the symbol is team. Let's go to Marianne in Illinois. Marianne. Hi, Jim. I'll get right to the point. I'm thinking of buying Spotify. What's I'm going to get right to the point. I think you should buy Spotify. I think they're doing a remarkable job. I love the podcast. Let's go to Cle- Clevertis in Pennsylvania. Clevertis. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. From, from the Poconos. Love the My uh, stock is Pelagis, P-L-D. Well, I looked at Homesdale for a place in a long time on the lack of wax, and I've got to tell you, ah, you and I think that alike. I think that that stock is terrific. I need to go to Daniel in New York. Daniel. Yes. Hit Jim, me. Hit me. I'd like to take a moment to thank you. Of course. For all your good advice and making thank you. me a better investor. Thank you. You're welcome. My stock is uh, Annette. Uh, the ticker's in that. It's Arista. Oh, man, you're talking about Jay Shree. We believe in Jay Shree. Now we believe in Cisco a little more, but hey, that's a goal. Stop it. Keith in Texas. No, I don't insult me. Keith in Texas. Keith. Hey, Jim. Love your show. First time caller. First time caller. Halliburton at 30. Sell, sell, sell. Sorry. Hate to be so anti the fossilers, but I am. I need to go to Gregory in California. Gregory. Professor C, how are you? You are indeed the fairest of them all. Well, thank you very much. Great club call last week. And to all the other listeners out there, if you're on the fence, just join up. It's a great club. Oh, thank you very Uh, much. Wow. You got it. I'm calling about invitation homes. I've done quite... Invitation homes, I'm not a fan. Oh, boy. It's up too much. I'm sorry, but nice comments. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Just because a company is incredibly cynical and self-serving, that doesn't mean it can't do good things now and then. And that's Facebook's new cyber currency initiative in a nutshell. This could prove to be a very good thing for 2 billion plus people who either don't have credit cards or live in countries where there's so much inflation that a traditional bank account, well, let's just say it would be quite risky. There's a lot of justifiable skepticism that Facebook's simply doing this to improve its image. And you know what? I'm, I'm sure that's a part of it. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But I think this Libra nonprofit initiative run by David Marcus, former president of PayPal, and a guy I like very much, who is a champion for privacy and, yes, a rectitude when it comes to the customer, I think will actually work. Libra will take advantage of Facebook's messaging platform, which uh, Marcus runs, to let users in countries with unstable currencies 48% of the world's people live in these kinds of shaky regimes and let them conduct transactions on the up and up. Now, in these situations, you only put your money in dollars or euros or even gold, but now they got another option that has much less friction, less cost. Facebook isn't trying to make any money on this, which could launch next year. Why? Because it, it's right to not make any money, but it's also right to show Congress that hundreds of millions of people still trust them and need them. They're really desperate for better PR. Who can blame them? Because they don't want to be raked over the coals by legislators worldwide for the rest of their lives. And so they're actually doing a good thing, a really good thing. For example, we know that check cashing operations have a really pernicious influence on poor neighbors. If you don't have a bank nearby, you're going to get ripped off by one of these check cashing guys. Facebook's new Libra currency could let you get around that. And if they end up helping millions of Americans, that will make it tougher for Congress to crack down on their privacy practices. And of course, help millions of Americans. Now, maybe a cryptocurrency isn't the best way to help people in banking deserts, but it's something. In a perfect world, we'd bring back 
postal banking, where you could open a savings account at the post office, which is something we used to have when I was a kid. But we don't live in a perfect world, people, and in this world, Libra is a lot better than nothing. Your phone, this, is going to become your bank for billions of people. Of course, Facebook's done a lot to ruin its reputation. However, this initiative could cut huge banks out of the equation while potentially also taking a huge slug of credit card transactions. That's why, of course, Visa and MasterCard are lined up in this thing. They're on the team. And it's a pretty good way for the company to improve its image. It would be better if Facebook didn't do anything shady to begin with. But the whole business model is premised on using your data to come up with targeted advertising. They're not going to do that, but they are setting up Libra in a way that I regard as kind of arm's length and won't make them any money to begin with. Now, this is a generally positive thing. I have no problem with companies doing good things to improve their public image. And ultimately, I wouldn't be surprised if Libra turns out to be a very big deal for Facebook shareholders, giving you still one more reason to buy the stock if you needed any more to do so. Stick with Kramer. After the close, one of my absolute favorite cloud kings, Adobe, Shantanu Narayan, reports a monster good number. You know I think these cloud stocks are for real. May I suggest you buy Salesforce, which is down just because it made a very good acquisition. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Monday. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow.